0: Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Well, we're joined today by Sue Thomas, author of books Technobiophilia, Nature and Cyberspace, Wild Women, Water and Others. We have her here today to talk about her book Technobiophilia. Sue, many thanks for joining us.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Ness.
0: You're welcome, Sue um well technobiophilia what is it
1: (laughs) well um there's an official definition and and a background behind it so the official definition um your listeners who are familiar with eo wilson's concept of biophilia will understand the first part of it because it's taken directly from biophilia Um, So Wilson defined it um, as the innate tendency to focus on life and lifelike processes. So technobiophilia, which is a word that I made up, which is a little bit clunky I'm afraid, but I couldn't think of anything better, is the same thing. Um, but with technology so the the full definition is the innate tendency to focus on life and lifelike processes as they appear in technology and that's the key to the techno part of technobiophilia okay so obviously um i mean you say that you basically coined the phrase um can you sort of tell us how that sort of came about Okay, so um, in the 1990s, I was very involved in the early internet and I set up an organization called the Trace Online Writing Center. I was at Nottingham Trent University teaching creative writing at the time and um, I became aware that more and more writers were beginning to use the internet and connecting with each other. So I was very lucky in that I got a big chunk of funding from the Arts Council of England and was able to set up this online community. So we set up in about, um, we started in 95, and in 97 we had the funding um, and we ran for 10 years. So at the time we were connecting writers all around the world, um, Australia, the US, Um, Some in England, some in Europe and they were all connecting with each other online in in a very busy online community and some of them were actually also experimenting with digital writing using hypertext and so on. Mm -hmm. So I was living in that online community. And for me, geography began, began to take on a different meaning. The geography of cyberspace, the feeling of where you are when you're online, you know, you and I talking together now um, across Zoom, um, we're in the same space in that we're in Zoom, but we're also in f- different physical spaces. Mm-hmm. So that became to really preoccupy me. Um, and so it was that i'd written several books but in 2004 i published a book called hello world travels in virtuality and that was about how i had come to feel myself constantly both online and offline at the same time because i was online most of the day many people that i knew good friends i'd never physically met And really, in those days, there was no um, decent video or anything. So you got to know each other mainly just through text chat. Mm. Um, But there was still a very strong sense of where you were, you know, if you're in the chat room or whatever. So Hello World Travels and Virtuality was my first book about, if you like, physical presence online. Um, at how it compares with the natural landscape so that's where it started <laughs> okay. and um, after I'd done Hello World I started to think am I the only person who feels that I'm in a physical place um, when I'm online so I set out to find out more and that was where I moved into the territory of looking at the metaphors that we used to talk about Um, cyberspace and the internet in general. And that began a long period of research, Um, first looking at the metaphors and trying to find out if I was right. And of course, I was right. There are many metaphors of nature in cyberspace. But then the second question was, well, why? Mm. Um, And that took me a long time to figure out because I was coming from a tradition of Um, English literature, history, creative writing, some geeky um, involvements, but I'm I'm not a programmer myself or anything. Um, And the area that I knew nothing about really was science and particularly environmental science and environmental psychology. And it was when I wandered into the area of environmental psychology and when I discovered biophilia, that I've realized why we talk about the internet and cyberspace as if it were a natural place. So at that point, having discovered biophilia, I was able finally to finish the book, <laughs> and the book was called Technobiophilia. Okay. So that's the long explanation as to how I came to it. <laughs> I'm
0: intrigued. We're going to chat a little bit later about the terminology um, of cyberspace. As You say sort of clouds and virus and spiders and things. Um, yeah. But, I mean I'm I've I've always been fascinated how we can actually embrace technology and and also at the same time embrace nature, how we can use the two. Uh, you know, initially I was thinking your your books about that and but it was it's actually much more than that. I mean you even mention how games like um Farmville and and even Grand Theft Auto use nature in the sort of visuals of those and how you're sort of playing around with nature. So you're actually as you say you're having these two separate worlds you're kind of living in a in a virtual world it's a kind of it is a geographic space but you are actually doing
1: something with nature or how do you think technology is being used to embrace nature? Well um, the examples that you gave are are both interesting ones Um, when Technobiophilia was published in 2013 I did various articles about the content of the book and one of the things um, that I looked at was this question of of games online. But after publishing the book, I learned a lot more. And one of the things I learned about was Farmville. So I published an article in Slate magazine about technobiophilia. And at the time, Farmville was uh, very big on Facebook and the people at Farmville contacted me out of the blue and they said, we've read your article, now we understand the impact that Farmville is having on our players we didn't understand until we'd read this article. And they said that in many of the focus groups that they do, they were discovering that players were reporting how they use Farmville at the end of the day to relax after work, Um, the great pleasure and enjoyment that they got from feeling as if they were growing their own tomatoes, um, looking after their own animals, collecting virtual eggs from virtual chickens and so on. Um, and that was not something they'd ever planned in Farmville and not something they expected. So when it happened that people were reporting, um, for example, they might be playing Farmville to counter depression and generally to make themselves feel calmer, they were really surprised. But when they read about technobiophilia, they realised that that was the explanation. So that was fascinating to hear from them. Um, and quickly about Grand Theft Auto. Um, I don't play video games like that myself, Um, and I was really interested to see that um, in Grand Theft Auto, which, as you probably know, is a really violent game um, set in California or, or you know, a kind of quasi-California, that there are lots of beautiful landscapes there, the the mountains and uh, the beaches and so on, and that there was a landscape photographers group on um, Flickr that was um, reporting, that that were sharing the photos that they had taken of landscapes they'd visited inside Grand Theft Auto. And what, yeah, and what attracted me was that one of my other obsessions is California. Okay. And so I was absolutely delighted to see these pictures because they do look just like California. And so I contacted them um, and talked about them too. Um, So they were very much like any landscape photographer. They were going out, discovering beautiful places and photographing them, except they weren't real. They were all virtual um, simulations. Mm-hmm. it's quite, quite interesting i mean i'm just obviously i'm a photographer as well
0: and um yeah it's um it's quite weird because obviously you, when you're out photographing you're out in a in a real space but ultimately you look through a lens and what you produce is digital and then you share it digitally you get it you know it's it's kind of it's all a virtual thing you know i mean obviously the, the, my, my main business is our gentle wellness where we we create virtual nature walls so these are huge large landscape um, images but that's really interesting I'm kind of it's just from a um, kind of almost like a surreal point of view that these people are are, are in a game playing a game and and actually taking photographs of yeah. the landscape I mean that's quite that's quite a phenomenal observation really.
1: Yeah, and, and actually a bit that I missed out when I was talking about the researching technobiophilia mm-hmm. um, was that one of the questions that I was asking was why do so many of us have natural landscapes as screensavers and wallpapers? Yeah. And, um, and whenever I do a talk about this, I always ask people to put up their hand if they have a natural landscape on their screen. And it's always, you know, as a screensaver or, or wallpaper. And it's always over 50%. Yeah, people who do that so um i really wanted to know why and discovering biophilia and so on made me realize that we do this unconsciously and that's why on my book um nature and well-being in the digital age you you might see that the cover of it is actually somebody holding a phone and on the screen of the phone there's a waterfall um because that's so common a
0: huge benefit of having technology with you that you can have this na- virtual nature um, simulation wherever you are. Yeah. I've just got a bit of a concept that I've been working on uh, mindful moments in nature but I- I'll-, I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, I mean just a sort of personal
1: question I mean, what does nature mean to you yourself? Well, I have a very mixed relationship with nature. Mm. When I was growing up, my family were all obsessed with nature TV. I'm talking about the 50s now, um, when it was a new thing to be able to go out and photograph and film in the wild. Mm. And I never liked it. It made me feel very uncomfortable. Um, And it made me feel that quite often they were sentimentalising it. And frankly, I still do feel that. I do feel that um you know we've now become obsessed with this vision of nature which is actually highly curated and it's narrated in that everything is explained to us as we go in in this calm soothing voice one of the things that fascinates me about the screen is that um, if you watch webcams which is one area that i'm doing a lot of research into webcams of nature um, are very different because that is nature real you know red in tooth and claw Mm -hmm. Um, and so I would rather watch if I'm going to watch a screen I'd rather watch it on a webcam where I see what's really happening than in a sentimentalized nature tv program but my relationship with outdoors nature is mostly connected with water because I grew up by the sea and I live by the sea now and that's what they call blue mind which is a kind of similar to biophilia but it's very much connected with with water of different Mm -hmm. kinds Um, and I tend to switch between enjoying being by the sea, by water, and then being in forests. So it's kind of one extreme to the other. Mm. But for me, it just really helps me settle and think straight and um, just be, just to be there.
0: And I also, I suppose when you, I mean, you mentioned the webcams of nature and you're seeing everything like the sort of tooth and claw of, of nature and it, it, it can be quite violent, can't it? I mean, even if you're looking at um, local jackdaws and, or whatever it is and they're kind of almost terrorising the local small songbirds or you know, they're going for nests and things. Biophilia is about our, our interest, our love of living things of life. And there's yes. also that adrenaline rush. That we we get as well when we're in you know what I mean our um, early primitive state was you know flee run stuff so having a mix of uh-huh. nature experience I mean, is a good thing
1: yes and there's some very interesting webcam stories.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, which compared with, as I say, when I was a kid and we were watching lions chasing wildebeest and tearing them to pieces, I did not enjoy that experience. (laughs) Um, But, um, for example, an interesting webcam story a few years ago is that um, people were watching an eagle's nest, which was managed by rangers, um, uh, who'd set up this some kind of special eagle breeding post. And these things are always watched by hundreds of people who chat in the chat room as they watch. Mm. And one day, um, one of the eagle parents brought the chicks a live kitten and dropped it in the nest, and you can imagine what followed from that. Now, the chat room people went crazy, of course, and were saying, oh, my God, we've got to do something. You've got to get up there and rescue the kitten and all this kind of thing. Mm. And the rangers really had to hold their stance and say no this is the wild we cannot interfere Um, and you often do hear that happening around nature webcams Mm -hmm. is that people they want the sentimentalized version they want to watch the pretty chicks in the nest but they don't want to see them tearing apart a kitten but that's that's reality and and the rangers have a tough time having to um you know resist from helping out it's
0: important for us to have that the two sides the duality of of nature experience um i mean obviously with the whole with biophilic design when you're bringing it in the workplace then you kind of want to create something um in a space or um with your workforce or your health in your healthcare unit that's going to Enhance certain aspects of your working day, uh, or to encourage creativity or productivity. But I mean, this is kind of a sort of question to the listeners and to anybody else as a kind of challenge. What about if you could create um, a space where people could view something? I'm not saying about the kitten in the <laughs> in the eagle nest, yeah. but um, but something that kind of would almost give them an adrenaline trigger that would then inspire some kind of solution finding. I mean, it'd be interesting. Well, I've got no idea, but I mean, I'm sure some psychologists. There's some some research that's been done. If there hasn't, it'd be interesting to see the results. But what kind of benefit would that bring to some kind of productivity or result in in us that you know by, by viewing something that was quite um, quite scary, say, um, but a yeah. nat- natural thing? What would that What would that do to us? I mean, I don't know if there's any research yeah. being done, but I'd be intrigued to know so
1: yeah I would too um but you know what it is a really interesting idea because mm. one of the issues that I've come up against with doing this research is that we always think about it being calming and relaxing and for example on uh on some cruise ships although none of them are, are around at the moment but you know if you have an internal cabin on a cruise ship you have no porthole no window to the outside world yeah. but i understand that quite a few cruise companies are now providing a virtual balcony <laughs> so that you can open your window you can see a virtual sea going by and feel uh, or hear the wind and so on so on and that's all meant to give people the sense of being in an outside balcony when actually they're in an inside balcony and I've been thinking about how that could be used in places like prisons to keep people calm people who are in poor housing with perhaps no windows to keep Um, and so on so there's very much about a a kind of discussion in it's always about the well-being and the calmness but your idea is very interesting Mm. because it could be stimulating yeah Um, it it could be i don't know perhaps a a bird hunting for food or something like that um that has a rise and fall has a dramatic integrity within it rather than endless pictures of yeah. you know grazing
0: cows or something yeah exactly I mean it might be sort of interesting for different types of businesses as well you know to try and solution find I'm just also thinking if your sales or you're trying to attack a market of your disruptive technology or something and you're trying to you know reach into places or maybe you've got a lot of competitors or something I don't know it might just kind of spark some other kind of thought process that we've not thought about kind of
1: anyway anyway completely random (laughs) if i could just add to that if they could combine that with an actual outdoors exploration that would be even better
0: yeah actually that would be cool wouldn't it you know so take them on safari and leave them for a day (laughs) no No, that's wrong that's wrong Um, I mean, was just sort of actually <laughs> talking about the workplace and, and offices, I mean, this whole um, COVID and the, and the lockdown period, um, I mean, it is, it's been very challenging for, for so many people. I mean, not just in terms of economy, but also um, psychology, um, lots of stress levels. Um, I mean, there's loads of people not wanting to go back to the office, um, but where they and obviously, where they can, they want to work from home. How do you see the future workforce embracing technology while also? embracing nature i mean you've touched on it very briefly just now but um what do you think
1: yeah well i mean two two things the first thing is give up on the guilt a lot of people love their technology they love their phones and tablets and laptops but they feel really guilty about it because know there's a whole kind of swathe of culture which says it's wrong you shouldn't be looking at your phone all the time all this kind of thing so there's developed there's been developing a split between you might say the kind of the purists and the people who actually do love their phones but are too frightened to admit it because it has, you know, people will say they make you stressed, et cetera, et cetera. Or you get addicted to your phone and so on. So mm-hmm. I think the first step is to um, not feel guilty about it. Say, yes, I enjoy technology and I enjoy the natural world as well. And I can embrace both of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you've done that, you can then become in the kind of second stage, become more mindful of your own world the the places you move around in and how technology and, and nature are already interacting and how you could enhance them so um, in in nature and, and well-being in the digital age i, I actually give 50 tips on um, how you can do that how you can have more nature without having less technology and that could be all kinds of things Um, from looking at your desk and thinking well have I got natural objects on my desk that I can touch. I for example have got a a mouse made out of bamboo rather than plastic. Um, I've got stones and shells on my desk that you know when I want to take a break and think I can actually just pick up a nice stone and turn it round in my hand. That seems like a tiny thing but it's actually an awareness and mindfulness of having physical contact with natural, um, natural objects around you. And then, of course, plants on your desk and so on. Not just the kind of you know, pallid spider plant that every office has, but yeah. something that you cherish and look after and touch every day and be mindful about it. Um, so they're the kind of physical things, but obviously we talk about the virtual aspects and the screen-based aspects as well. So I would say, yeah, you know, go for it. Just say, yes, I'm going to make my life more technobiophilic, um, whether it's indoors or outdoors, and I'm going to do it consciously and mindfully and not feel guilty. You mentioned the 50 tips and tricks and experiments to try that you've got listed in your book. If listeners,
0: if you can get a copy, you can download it on Kindle, is that right sue kindle
1: or paperback or paperback, physical, yeah. physical or virtual <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> um but it is really good there are some really interesting tips um everything from um creating false views with your you know with pictures on your screens and stuff but there's a really interesting one as well about browsing through facebook or twitter and actually stopping and appreciating um other people's nature photos i think that's a really nice time out yeah. kind of thing so um
1: I mean, it is. Yeah. I live by the sea and it, it's quite funny, really, that every time we have a nice sunset, everybody's out on the beach. They all take a photo of the sunset. They all put it up on Facebook yeah. and everybody says, wonderful, wonderful. And they get hundreds of likes. Yeah. Um, it's a tiny thing, but people love them
0: yeah it's true I get more likes on mine I've got Twitter you know my Instagram account my personal Instagram and I also get more likes on on water views and and sort of and yeah sunsets I don't know what that is about (laughs) another piece of research for you um (laughs) going back on like give up on the guilt and addiction I mean to be fair some people are really addicted to their phones and you know to the detriment of of actually conversation and sort of communication with family and stuff or whatever else. And you kind of be in the middle of something and they're off, they're off on one. But do you think that the repulsion of technology in the form of like mobile phones and laptops and stuff, isn't is something? It's something like an inherent call within us to reject the artificial and to embrace something more natural in, you know, instead people often express burnout and high levels of stress from having to be on all the time. And they're always yeah. followed around by their employers or, or connections and they just actually don't
1: get time out to be. I mean, what do you think about that? It's complicated. I think first yeah. of all that I don't believe in the idea of being addicted to technology. I think it's your choice. You can turn it on or off. I mean if you eat a lot you don't say you're addicted to your knife and fork. <laughs> It's yeah. a choice, it's a choice. And I think people who say, oh, I'm addicted to it, they're giving up responsibility for something that's easy to do if they make it their mind. Um, I personally hate it when people are constantly on their phones while I'm with them, um, or, or in the middle of a conversation suddenly start sending an email. Um, it makes me furious, I have to admit. But I don't think that's the fault of the phone. That is the fault of the person. And and I do hope that we can soon develop um, a different kind of behavior in which people realize that that's just not acceptable any more than blowing smoke in your face, for example, for those who still smoke is acceptable. Um, So there's that. In terms of the workplace thing, of of employers following you around, I think that is to do probably with the law being slow to catch up with technology, because I think that will probably be dealt with um, in legal terms, probably within the next five years, Mm -hmm. that employers won't be allowed to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But we are in that transition space where we're, we're getting used to what technology lets us do, and we're not always very good yet at stopping it, <laughs> you know, oh, stopping employees from doing those things. So I think that's a transitional thing um, that that will be solved. Um, and I, I think really it's people have to stop thinking about these machines as enemies. I mean a pencil is a piece of technology, mm. um, Uh, You know, there were times when people said that if you, the human body moved any faster than it can naturally go, that it would explode. You know, it's just humans yet again struggling to come to terms with technology of, you know, that happens to be new to them saying, it's interesting if you use it in a positive way you
0: know, if you're and you just and I think the key is if you're in control if you're if you can use nature if you can use nature there we go if you can uh, use technology <laughs> to, to your benefit really to have access and I think particularly it's really useful if you're lonely and stuff and i just bring it I mean sort of bringing it back to sort of biophilia but if you are sort of lonely or if you're in a, an environment where you can't get out or you can't escape then even like television you know what I mean it's still a technology thing it gives you a world elsewhere it kind of takes you off somewhere else so and being able to be connected to an outside space even or to travel I mean with this whole thing you know not being able to have access to I mean I would have probably gone away about sort of three or four times already by now and obviously not being able to go it's kind of weird for me so I have actually been I've got quite various sort of email lists and stuff. So I just get fed and every now and again, I'll just click through and look at Belmond or whatever it is. And I just go off for like 10 minutes looking at the lovely hotels and the space and the views and yeah, just as a, as an
1: escape route. So um, yeah, 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 absolutely. But I think as we're being given more opportunities to do that, I, you know, that people, hotels are creating virtual reality experiences and so on in the hope of drawing people back eventually. Yeah. Um we can use the technology in a positive way and we can also do live calls with people in from beautiful spaces and share them in that way. I mean, COVID obviously is absolutely horrendous, yes. but my God, if we didn't have live video which we uh, available as we do have it would be much much worse if we didn't have phones if we were if it was you know mm-hmm. the the black death in 14 whatever it was yeah. we would be wishing we had zoom <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know?
0: um as you mentioned also virtual reality i think i mean that's so, I just thought i i think we could have a whole podcast on that in itself yeah. Um, And actually that might be a, a, you know, I would like to do that with you actually at some stage to talk about um, virtual reality and the benefits of virtual views and look at some research and, and sort of discuss that a bit, a bit more, but I was fascinated to read your highlights of nature-based terminology. And and you, you, you mentioned it earlier in the conversation, things that are used in cyberspace, like from, you know, web to clouds, viruses to spiders, worms to Python, torrents, streams, I mean, why do you think that is? And you, you mentioned it earlier. I mean, why do you, you said you researched into it. Um, yeah. What, what, what is it, do you think?
1: Well, when I first started looking into it, I thought the easiest way would be to go and speak to what, the people who they call the fathers of the internet mm-hmm. and ask them, you know, engineers, and ask them, well, why did you call it this, that, or the other? Um, and I pretty quickly found out that they... They weren't interested in the question and uh, they didn't have any explanation. So um, I had to look elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I really did decide when I came upon the idea of biophilia about how we innately connect to things that seem like nature, Mm -hmm. that this is what was going on. That, That when we entered cyberspace, it was a new world. It was like going to a new planet. Mm-hmm. Um, where all the rules were different, and you had a sense of being somewhere, but you had no idea where it was or what it was. Um, and so I think that we used our natural metaphorical library, if you like, mm-hmm. to look for words that felt right. Um, and if you look in writings of the kind of early cyberspace years, you'll see this as well in novels and in. Um, memoirs of people writing how it felt and then we see it appearing in the terminology Mm -hmm. Um, so i think it came from that very deep subjective unspoken part of our lexicon Mm -hmm. and um, what i did at one time was i asked a lot of people the same question which was if if the internet were a landscape what kind of landscape do you think it would be and most people immediately had an answer for that, and in, and it was more often than not a watery landscape. But sometimes it was a desert, and sometimes it was a busy city. But everybody had a, a physical sense of how it felt for them to be in the place that was the internet. And just and listeners, if you're if you're listening,
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> just just yeah, just posing that question to you, listeners. Um, you know, if the internet was a landscape, what would that mean to you? Um, just have a think about that. That's that's a really, that's really quite an intriguing question. Just to sort of, kind of round round up a little bit the um, the views of nature. I think I sort of I mentioned before that obviously I'm a photographer and I create obviously landscapes for gentle Wellness and we we sort of we we put them on vinyl, we make cushions with them and all that kind of stuff. Um, I was talking to an AV company to create some virtual videos, video walls, if you want, um, by patient beds, um, particularly in healthcare, so that if they couldn't look outside, at least when they weren't looking at the screen, they could be looking, you know, or having like a, you know, video consultation, they could be, because they could swap it for landscape waterfall, or as you say, or, or just some trees or a familiar landscape to them, even a local place to them to create some stuff that's bespoke for them. Um, it's something I do really, really, really want to do. It's kind of a natural fit for me. If, um, I teamed up with uh, George Harvey, who's a, the producer of the um, front and end caps, um, the soundscapes on, on, on the front of the podcast. And we've got these mind, mindful moments in nature, which are five minute virtual timeouts. Um, I've sort of, We were editing them and they're, they're sort of sitting there. I'm not quite sure what to do with them yet, but it would be amazing to be able to put them somewhere so that people can have the benefit and the union really of as you say of of technology having it on their phone because they take it everywhere and then and combining it with some with an escape route with this kind of bit of virtual reality really how do you think the devices can create these virtual views and experiences for us i mean how do you see people using them now
1: well, well, I think that you know you, you've tapped into what is going to be an increasingly huge market mm-hmm. um, once people understand how to use these things, um, but you're reminding me that when I first came to live in Bournemouth about five or six years ago, I was invited to give a talk about technobiophilia um, at the Dorset Hospital in Dorchester, mm-hmm. and they had been doing something similar to what you describe they have um, and uh, they have an arts fund. And so they often have artists doing work at the hospital. And one particular artist did something similar to what you describe, Mm. which is that in the, a small leukemia ward, Mm. where people who were very ill were having to be kept in complete isolation because of their immune systems. Mm. And this artist hooked up um, two live stream videos So one of them looked out over Pool Bay, um, Mm -hmm. over the sea, and the other one looked out over an area of outstanding natural beauty. Mm -hmm. And in each room opposite the bed, they had a big TV screen. Mm -hmm. And obviously, patients weren't forced to watch this, but they could choose to watch it and they could have it on Mm 24-7. So if you were lying in in your bed, very sick, and you couldn't sleep, you could at least watch the natural world outside live and you could watch the sun come up and and the sun go down and so on. And the only pity of it is that they didn't keep any statistics and information about the effect on the patients mm. and I really wish that they had have done if they if they'd been able to correlate their watching to things like blood pressure and heart rate that yes. would have been very interesting mm. um it was called room with a view so I think it's been tried here and there but not properly in the way that you're thinking of it mm. and yeah I very much hope that um that you can do that yeah that'll be good.
0: Um, it's kind of sort of banging away in the background. It's sort of i need to need to get my finger out and do something with it, really.
1: <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> final bit of advice you mentioned earlier, you know you're sort of you're in control, not your phone. Now, how do you think technobiophilia can help us all, especially now?
1: I think it again comes back to I keep saying being mindful or being aware of um the whole world around you and not seeing it as as spit off different. Um, parts between technology and the natural world and obviously the built environment as well Mm -hmm. Um, and I do think that um, since Covid what we've seen is a huge rise of people um, buying house plants and filling their homes with plants Um, and I think that's a real indicator of the way it's going to go in the future Mm -hmm. so the next step is just to be aware of how that manifests itself um, you know, in in our technological lives as well. I understand that houseplants uh, is the big thing on Instagram, particularly between, I think, the people in their 20s and 30s. It's become massive looking after houseplants. And, of course, most people don't have gardens to grow veg in, but they are able to rear plants in their own homes quite easily. So that connection to nature has come back to us really through COVID and we just need to be aware of it um, when we're looking at screens and how we set up our computers and our work environments um, just to be conscious conscious of technobiophilia and biophilia. I would really like people to look at my book Nature and Wellbeing in the Digital Age because I wrote it in 2017. It was, if you like, a simplified version of Technobiophilia, which is quite a chunky academic research book. But Nature and Wellbeing in the Digital Age is a simpler approach to explaining the background and the research and then looking practically at how we can bring this into our lives. And of course, since Covid happened, it's, it's almost become a, a textbook, you know, for how you can integrate these lives together. So I would really love to hear from people who've read it and um, to talk to me about their own experiences with blending those different parts of our lives into one.
0: Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.